Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, everybody, show, uh, you can leave it open until people start coming in. So, um, and, the, and Facebook people, the reason that I'm on here is because I'm using the board tonight. So there's no, there's no PowerPoint tonight. I'm going to give you guys a sheet here in just a few moments. But what I want to do before we do Revelation 20 is something that I do all the time. But there's always new people coming in and out. And I think it's always important for us to kind of go over just this... Um, this core teaching that we talk about at Emmanuel that helps us delineate kind of how we categorize what we believe, okay? So if you've seen this ad nauseum, you can go to sleep. <clears throat> if you've never seen this before, you can, you know what, there's a glare. Let me just try to try to get that done. Okay, so <clears throat> dogma doctrine preferences dogma are those absolute essential beliefs that make you a christian historically orthodox christian if you if you go outside of dogma you're either a world religion or you're a cult or you're you're not you're not orthodox you're not um, so regardless of denomination regardless of title on the side of your church these are the fundamentals of the faith that makes Christianity Christianity. So the dogmas would be like the Trinity, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, Jesus as the only way, salvation by grace alone through faith alone, the authority of the Bible, um, the reality of heaven, the reality of hell, the, um, the second coming of Christ. Um, what else? The, um, the nature of sin, that we're, that we're born sinful. These are the absolute essentials that we have to believe in order to be a Christian. If you move outside of dogma, you're either a heretic or you're not orthodox. Okay? All right. Next, we have doctrines. Doctrines are what distinguish different denominations, different groups, and what they believe. So these are important things that we hold to, but they're secondary. So, for example, a doctrine would be mode of baptism. So, for example, we're a Baptist church, so we baptize by immersion, by dunking. We have the conviction that that's a, a biblical doctrine. Now, Presbyterians and Lutherans and others may sprinkle babies. Okay? Some churches practice speaking in tongues and apostolic sign gifts. Um, some churches have um, full congregational rules. Some churches have deacons, elders, church council, board, um, some churches have female pastors. Um, some churches um, have differences over um, eternal security. Can you lose your salvation? So there's some things that we as Emmanuel would say, yeah, we're going we're gonna to hold to these doctrines pretty tightly, but we're not going to say that if you don't believe the same doctrine as we do, you're not a Christian. Does that make sense? So the end times falls under doctrine with the exception of four key elements. Okay, so I would say dogma, let, let's talk about just, there's four key issues related to the end times that really have to be there. 
okay? So number one, the literal, visible, physical return of Christ to planet Earth, okay? The Bible is very clear that Jesus will literally, visibly, physically return to the earth. Okay, that's, that's pretty, you really can't argue against that. Okay, a resurrection. A resurrection of the dead or those who are still alive, a catching up. But the Bible is very clear that there's going to be a final resurrection of the dead. We'll receive in the twinkling of an eye. There's going to be a final judgment. And there's going to be the, what we call the final states. There's going to be heaven and hell. Now, the question becomes, okay, we know these are the things that have to be part of an end times theology. The question becomes, okay, how do these all things work out? How, how do they unfold? What's the timing? What's the order? This is where Christians agree to disagree, like kind of the order and the timing and, and how to interpret things symbolically and, and things like that. Okay. Yes, Paul. Kind of help my mind out. We talk about this is what's in doctrine or this is what's in revelation. I'm giving you the big picture. This big picture. Yeah, that, okay. that, that just in Christian theology, big picture, before we even get to revelation, just in big picture eschatology, which is the study of end times, Christian theology, those are four things that just really have to be part of your belief system. Okay? Gotcha. Now, the of my belief system and all Christians yeah. Okay, now, when we get to, and then preferences, guys, preferences, I like blue carpet, I like green carpet, I like pink carpet. <laughs> um, <laughs> pastor has to wear a tie when he preaches. Um, Version of Bible, praise team versus choir, all the things that you can't really find a Bible verse or a theology for. It's more like this is what I personally like, um, what I dislike. It's more of a preference than it is really. A, you can't go to a Bible verse and say I could prove it. It's more this is just kind of what I like. Now, tonight, when we talk about Revelation chapter 20, we are clearly in the doctrine category. And the reason we're in a doctrine category is because for the past 2,000 years, the church has not agreed on which view to hold to. So I can stand before you today and say that there's probably four major views, but I'm just going to give you three of the most predominant. There are three major views of how to understand Revelation 20, how to understand the book of Revelation, how to understand end times that Christians have agreed to disagree upon for years. Okay. What we don't want to do is we don't want to elevate an interpretation of Revelation 20 to a dogma. Because if, 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 you, if you elevate your particular interpretation of Revelation 20 to a dogma, what you're basically saying is anybody that doesn't have your interpretation is not a Christian and they're not actually right. Now, you can say very strongly, here's the view I hold to, here's the reasons why I hold to it, I have a strong conviction but I'm going to allow you to have your strong convictions and I want to hear your reasons why. Okay? You're right. You have a right to be wrong. I have a right to be right. Or however else you want to look at that. Or however you want to look at that, okay? So what I'm going to do tonight is we're going to read Revelation 20 and then I'm going to do my best to give you the... Th I'm going to describe to you the three predominant views 
I'm going to give you the strengths and weaknesses of each view, and then we're going to kind of draw it on a timeline, okay? So let me just preface this by saying that about 12, 13 years ago, um, I spent a couple of weeks just doing an intense study of the end times where I got in my office, I have poster board all around where I'm writing things and I put it into a big spreadsheet and, and I tried to figure out, okay, what view am I going to hold to? And as I racked my brain and as I read and as I studied, I came to the conclusion that there is no view that's 100% foolproof, that doesn't have some weaknesses in it. And the reason I think that is so is because, number one, we can't be dogmatic, and number two, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> so some things we just don't know. Okay, so, there's, so what I'm going to share with you tonight, it takes you through. So tonight we're going to go through a little bit of church history, how the church in whatever period of time has interpreted the, this, this chapter. Um, I'm going to give you names of certain people who hold to this. I'm going to give you the strengths and weaknesses of the view. Okay, so let's turn to Revelation chapter 20 and read it, and then I'll give you the handout. I got two handouts, and we're going to, I'll kind of show you how to look at them side by side. So let's just read Revelation 20. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, heaven and hell. Yeah, I'm sorry tonight, guys. You're going to have to read my handwriting and not, not see the PowerPoint on the screen. So I'll make sure I write legibly. I'm not sure if we'll get there, but um, I'll go slow. I'll write, I'll write legibly. And, and, and I'm trying to help those that are watching. So that there's many different ways this, this teaching gets out there. You guys here in the room, those that are watching right now on Facebook, and then I'm also recording it so people listen to it. So this is more of a visual teaching. So if you don't have the visual aids, it's gonna, you're going to have to really listen, listen well. Paul, did you have a question? Okay. All right. Well, let's just, let's just pick up Revelation chapter 20, and let's just talk about what we saw last week. Um, who are the four enemies of God's people? Babylon, the harlot. She was destroyed, right? the beast from the sea that we call the Antichrist and the false prophet, those two were also thrown into the lake of fire. So all the enemies of God's people to this point in Revelation have been thrown into the lake of fire with the exception of who's left? Satan. Okay? So let's pick up in chapter 20 starting in verse 1. <clears throat> then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. 
Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence... Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, makes a lot of sense, right? You ready? Okay. So let me pass these out. I've got two handouts that need to be viewed side by side, okay? Because on one of the handouts has the explanation. On the other handout has the drawing, the timeline. So we're going to look at the three predominant views of how they understand Revelation chapter 20. So the first view where's my, is what we would call historic, sometimes it's called classical, historic or classical pre-millennialism. Now, I'm, we're using the word millennialism. Why do we use the word millennialism? What does millennial mean? A thousand. Okay, so this passage of Scripture talks about a thousand-year reign. thousand years. Okay? Now, what I need you to do on your sheet of paper is to historic or classic premillennialism historic premillennialism, you've got the description, you got the drawing. Okay, what I'm going to do to make this easy is I'm going to draw this up on the board as you're looking at it on your sheet, and I'm going to explain it as I draw it, and then I'm going to, we'll go back to the sheet to make sure I didn't miss anything, okay? So, so here's, probably your best thing to do is just maybe look at the, the, the timeline. Okay. We'll look at the timeline first. I'll, I'll kind of describe the, the, the timing of how things work out, and then we'll go back and um, we'll look at the sheet. Okay. So in historic premillennialism, so all of these views are going to have a timeline. So you've got the birth of Christ when Jesus the Messiah comes to earth. Okay. Now, while Jesus is on his earthly ministry, he's preaching the kingdom of God. He's going around and teaching. He's casting out demons. Um, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came preaching in Matthew, I think, chapter 4, says the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark, chapter 1, 
Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Okay? Jesus died on the cross. We'll put the cross in there. He rose again. He appeared to his disciples for 40 days. And then what did he do? He ascended. So you got the ascension. He goes back up to heaven. I'm not even sure if people on the screen can even see what I'm drawing. Let's just move this in a little closer. You guys probably better rather see it than, than hear me or see me. Okay. Now, right now, there's a time period that obviously Jesus hasn't come back. So when Jesus left to go back to his father, John chapter 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16, who did Jesus promise he would send? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We as Christians are um, advancing the gospel through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit lives in us. We are indwelt by the Spirit. We're sanctified by the Spirit. Um, Okay, so this is an indefinite period of time. We really don't know how long it's going to be. But right before Christ comes back, there's going to be a period of tribulation. Now, what have we seen in Revelation all along? There's tribulation going on right now, is there not? I mean, in some places of the world, it's worse than it is here if you live in North Korea or Somalia. But the Bible does speak of an apostasy, a major falling away, a major rebellion, a major time of persecution, tribulation that's going to be ramped up right before Jesus comes back. Okay. Now, when Jesus comes back at His return, His second coming is a simultaneous back-to-back event with the first resurrection. So when Jesus comes back, those that are alive will be caught up to meet Him in the air. Those who are dead will go before those, and they will be resurrected. Okay, this is the first resurrection. Not necessarily a time frame on the tribulation, and just a period of, of apostasy tribulation. The big thing about this view is that the return of Christ and the catching up or resurrection are a simultaneous back-to-back event. They happen at the same time. Okay. Then comes a literal, I'm going to run out of room on the sheet or on the board here, a literal thousand years. So this view takes the thousand years literally, not symbolically, as a literal thousand years. During this time, Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. But right before the final judgment, there is another massive rebellion led by Satan. And then comes the second resurrection at the final judgment. And then you've got heaven and you got hell now the reason it's called pre-millennial is that 
the millennium is a literal thousand years before the, the final judgment. Okay, so this view takes Revelation 20 in a, in a pretty literal way as opposed to a symbolic way. Okay, so let's look at your sheet here. Let's look at the sheet now. This was the view of the early church fathers up until around the 400s when Augustine influenced the move to amillennialism. Okay. This view is most widely held by current evangelical scholars and seminary professors outside of Dallas Theological Seminary and Moody Bible Institute. We're going to get to that view here in just a moment. That's called dispensationalism. People who hold to this view Justin Martyr, his early church father. Irenaeus, early church father. Tertullian, early church father. Papias, early church father. George Eldon Ladd, he was a New Testament scholar in the 70s. Millard Erickson, um, he's a Baptist that's written a systematic theology. Uh, Wayne Grudem, who's popular systematic theology. John Piper holds to this view. Um, and nobody's really sure what view Charles Spurgeon held to, but I, some people think he was, a, he was this. You can never pin down Spurgeon on what his in times view was. So. so let's just look at the tenets. So there's nine things. I kind of explained them, but with this, so you may want to have both of your sheets out side by side. Just kind of look in here again. Okay, so Old Testament prophecies are interpreted literally. Let me turn this over here. Old Testament prophecies are interpreted literally and fulfilled in spiritual Israel, which is the church. Okay. God does not have two plans, plan A for the Israel and plan B, the church. Um, all the promises that God had in the Old Testament, land promises, temple promises, all those types and shadows, they're fulfilled in Jesus and the church. Okay, So the hermeneutic or the way to interpret the Bible in this view is that the Old Testament is to be interpreted in light of the New Testament. So how do you understand the Old Testament? You look at how the New Testament interprets those passages of Scripture. Okay. Big, big tenet on this one, the church will go through whatever this great tribulation is. The church will go through it. We're not going to be raptured out of it. Not, not necessarily a literal seven years, the church will go through the tribulation. Number five, the rapture slash resurrection of the righteous and the second coming of Christ are simultaneous back-to-back -back events based upon the interpretation of Matthew 24 and the Thessalonian epistles. Christ will return bodily in power, victory and glory. There is no secret rapture of Christ coming for His saints, but only one second coming. That's important. That's a difference in some of the other views. Number six, there will be a thousand-year reign with Christ. This could be literally a thousand years or a symbolic number, but an actual earthly reign before the great white throne judgment. Okay, so here's the view. At this first resurrection and the second coming, we don't go up to heaven. We come back down to earth. And you live on earth in your glorified body for a thousand years. And you can live on earth in a glorified body for a thousand years because you have a glorified body. And Jesus is physically there ruling and reigning and all of his saints with him. 
Okay, that's the view. That's why, that's why it's called the premillennial. It's a literal thousand years. You're literally on planet Earth in a glorified body. Jesus is literally reigning. There is the body of Christ for a thousand years. Okay. At the end, and during this thousand years, Satan is bound. But towards the end of that thousand years, so let's just go back and look at, your, look at, your, um, look at chapter 20, verse 7. This is where I get confused on these different interpretations because I have some questions that aren't answered. And I've asked certain people and I don't get a good answer, so maybe you have one. All right, so verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So, so what is Satan being? Satan's being let out of his prison. We don't know like exactly when towards the end of that thousand-year reign. It says when the thousand-year reign is ended, he's going to have this huge rebellion of all these people. And what's their number? Look at verse 8. What's the number of the people that are going to be joined to Satan in this rebellion? Their number is like the sand of the sea. A lot of people, okay? And they are going to rebel before the great white throne judgment. Okay, so, so verse seven, or number seven there on your sheet. At the end of the millennium, Christ will conquer the rebellion led by Satan and will usher in the great white throne judgment. After the millennium, the unrighteous dead will be raised to life. Okay, that's the second resurrection. The unrighteous dead. And they will be judged in the body and then consigned to everlasting hell. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where the saints of Christ will dwell with Him forever. Let me stop and make sure you kind of understand the timeline. Everybody understand the timeline? A thousand years. Okay. Or just, just the whole timeline here of kind of how it unfolds. Yeah. So let me give you the strengths of this view, and let me give you the weakness of this view, and then we'll stop and ask questions. Okay. So strengths. It takes a more literalistic approach to Bible prophecy and handles Revelation 20 at face value as a literal thousand-year reign. So when it talks about a thousand-year reign, you look at it and say, okay, it's a literal thousand-year reign. There's no reason to not take it as a thousand-year reign. That's the interpretation. Okay? It deals more accurately with the first resurrection of the righteous being bodily in nature rather than spiritualizing it. Notice what it says there. In verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom were given authority to judge. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Okay, this is the first resurrection, which assumes there's what? A second resurrection, if this is the first resurrection. So at the first resurrection, believers and believers only are caught up in the air or resurrected with their bodies, and they come back to live on earth. It's not until the 
second death or the second resurrection that all the unrighteous dead who weren't part of that first resurrection, then they're raised and they're going to be judged at the great right throne judgment and receive heaven or hell. Okay? It does not totally, this is number three, uh, number two, one, two, yeah, number <coughs> three. It approaches interpreting the Bible through a preferable hermeneutic by viewing the Old Testament through the lens of the New. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to dispensationalism. Number four, it does not totally rule out a special place for Jews in the end times, but take passages that deal with the church being the new Israel more accurately. And then number five, and this is kind of the big, this is the big one if you really like to play the church history game. This reflects the beliefs of the earliest church fathers who were closest to the apostles in the early church. Now, just because something was earliest in church history doesn't necessarily mean it's the most accurate. It's just what the church believed for the first 400 years. So you could make a pretty strong argument that, hey, these guys were closer to John who wrote this, and they, you know, John's apostle was um, Polycarp, and Polycarp passed it on to Ignatius, and you know, down, down the line, we, we got a pure version of what the apostles believed. Okay? Now, weaknesses. Here's the big question I have. Okay. Weaknesses. It does not answer the question of how evil can exist in a millennium in a rebellion of thousands of people with Satan while living under the rule of Christ. So let me ask you a question. Believers and believers only get resurrected. They come back and live on earth. Okay. They live on earth for how long? Okay. Who's still left? Non-believers. Can non-believers live for a thousand years? My big question is, who, where did all these people come from that are part of that huge rebellion at the end of the thousand years? Go ahead. Okay, I, I do not think that's views. Okay. My view is a church in Israel separate. Okay. To keep the church in Israel separate, mm -hmm. everybody falls into place. My view. Sure. And we'll get to that view for you. Okay. So, what, what happens, a lot of times people look at the Gospels like the prophecies of mm -hmm. Matthew 24, mm -hmm. Mark 13, sure. and Luke. Luke 21. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say that's the church. It is not the church. Those prophecies are not the church. Because mm -hmm. Jesus Christ came to who? Who is he preaching the kingdom to? Not to the church. Church doesn't come about until Acts chapter 2. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's He's the preaching to Israel. Right. He's preaching the kingdom to Israel. Right. Israel goes through the tribulation period. <laughs> the church does not. Mm -hmm. Now, when you read in Matthew, it talks about one is taken, one is left behind. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that's the rapture. Mm -hmm. It is not, because Jesus explains it, just like in the days of Noah. Mm -hmm. The water came and washed them away. Who did God take away in the days of Noah? And who was left? The wicked. Mm -hmm. All unbelievers are taken away. And then the ones that are left on the earth are the believers. Well, the one that's taken away and one is left behind, that is the end of the tribulation period. So all unbelievers, everybody who gets the mark of the beast, mm -hmm. is taken away. Only the believers go into the millennial period. Now, the millennial, in the millennial people period, these believers that go into the millennial people, in a period, I'm sorry, the people that go into the millennial period will have their physical bodies. They will have children. 
So these children, because they don't have resurrected bodies, mm -hmm. these children or these people will have children, but those children have to get saved the same way we get saved. So can you imagine? And the Old Testament talks about these people. If you die at 100 years old, that's just a baby. So can you imagine how many children you could have if you age to be hundreds of years old? So you can have a huge population explosion. So you get all these children, they have to believe. Mm -hmm. So if these people do not believe in Jesus Christ, Satan comes back in a young thousand years, he's got a whole group of people of unbelievers. Can they right. be deceived? Not a problem. Right. And that's right. And that, and that's and that's the, that's the dispensationalist view. The problem that a lot of people have with that is you have you have a you have no specific scripture that teaches that people will be procreating in the millennial reign, and you also have a second fall because you have unregenerate children being born to regenerate. A husband and wife that are regenerate, they're giving birth to a child that's not regenerate. You almost have like a second fall. And so there's, that's kind of the, the thing. So that's the dispensationalist understanding of that, um, that, that the people that are on earth during the time of the literal millennium are having children, and over that period of time, it's the un, I guess you'd call them, I guess unsaved or unregenerate or, okay. So the question then becomes, the text here doesn't say anything about this at all. Children have, people having children, how somebody gets saved during the millennium, it just describes what, it just describes it. It just says the thousand years are over, Satan's released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations. Um, it doesn't really explain exactly what goes on during the thousand-year reign. It just says there is a thousand-year reign. Um, so there's a lot of things that have, you kind of have to fill in the gap and say, okay, if we're going to take this literally, then we've got to figure out, we're going to have to fill in some gaps because there's a rebellion, obviously, because it talks about how Satan is released. There's a rebellion we got to kind of answer that question, okay, where did that, who are those people, where did that rebellion come? So there's, there's kind of the, the inferences that are made to kind of get you to that understanding, whereas what you have in Revelation 20 is, it doesn't really describe what goes on per se. All it says is, we'll see down here, it says um, in verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. That's, that's all it says. They will be priests, and they will reign. Beyond that, what that looks like, it doesn't really give us a lot of description there. Well, there's different ways you look at it. Like, for example, you can say that at the second coming of Christ, when everything's destroyed, non-believers do not get allowed to go into the millennial reign, just resurrected believers. And they and only they are living with Christ literally for a thousand years. And they're procreating, having children... And those children are living on earth with 
You got mixed, you got a mixed race. You got unregenerate and glorified people living together for a thousand years. Then towards the end, those children of those people that even though they're not regenerated, they're still living for a long period of time. They're the part of the rebellion that comes against Christ. And then you have the final judgment, the second death, where the unrighteous dead are raised. Only the resurrected, the righteous, resurrected right. righteous. And that's all. Right. All. Okay. Is that? Yeah, I okay. So this view here, the people that are in the thousand-year reign, those are people that have their glorified bodies within mm-hmm. them. They mm-hmm. don't have their physical bodies. Yeah, they've been glorified. Yeah, they've, been res- they've, they've experienced the resurrection. They come back. Not the not well not the not those that are resurrected. That's the question. That's, 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 that's the. Puzzling, that's my question. Who's, who's re- well, that's my question. Who's rebelling? Yeah. So because you've got, you've got a verse here, guys. that says their numbers like the sand of the sea. You've got a huge population of people that are rebelling. So so here's the thing about. So I guess the big weaknesses of a premillennial view, whichever whichever way you look at it, somehow you got to answer that. And, and I mean, you can, however you guys answer it. I'm just kind of giving you the views. You got to answer who are these people and where did they come from. Just kind of that's just something you're going to have to, because the text tells you, there was a large number like the sands of the sea, and they marched over the broad plain of the earth, and the devil deceived them to do that. Right here. Uh, there were non-believers, and this view says what happened to those non-believers. This view says that those non-believers, yeah. they will, they go to, they don't go to hell 2.0. I mean, they don't go to the full hell, right. like the, the the everlasting. Some people would say that they would go to a place called Hades, oh. which is like hell 1.0. Still, it's still, it's still bad. <laughs> But it's not the final state of the eternal lake of fire. And they're just waiting there as souls until the end of the millennium when they're going to be resurrected. In the, the lost, unregenerate person will be resurrected in a body because they have to face judgment for deeds done in the body. Because notice what it says there. Um, if you go back there in verse 12, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. So they're judged according to what they had done. Anyone's name not written in the Lamb's book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So the judgment of lost people has to be, they have to be in a body. Because the Bible is very clear that you are judged, they're judged for what they had, for what they had done. You, you commit sins in your body. And then they're cast into the lake of fire with a body to live forever in eternal conscious torment in hell. Stop and take your breath. What time, how much time do we have? Verse 
I don't know. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't tell us. Yeah. The Bible doesn't tell us they're having children. The Bible doesn't tell us that after Christ, it, it doesn't give us a lot of information as far as what's happening. And if you have people in resurrected bodies living with people that aren't in resurrected bodies, you kind of have a mixed multitude of on a, on a literal earth. And how that all works out, I don't know. That's just, these are just things you're going to have to work through. Because we were talking today in my study was that these people, are you, what age are you going to be? What, you know, I mean, do babies? Yeah, I mean, the, the Bible doesn't speak about that. I, I mean, I have some personal opinions about that. Um, you know, like you think about aborted babies or stillbirth babies or babies that die in infancy. Um, when they get their resurrected bodies, are they going to be like an adult? Or are they going to be resurrected as a baby? The, the Bible doesn't tell us. Um, I would like to think they would be resurrected in, in a, as an adult. But that's, that's just a personal opinion. I don't have a, an actual scripture to back that up. Um, you know, the Bible doesn't say what they'll be resurrected. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. People that are there during this thousand year years, like the sand of the sea, what's the point of reproduction at that point in time? I, I don't see a need for it personally. Well, that was a that was a that was a covenant. That was God's uh, cultural mandate to fill the earth right. and subdue the earth, um, which is still around today. That's Correct. that's the that's the, the mandate. Um, and so there's some things that. I guess what I'm trying to tell you is there's a whole lot more it doesn't tell us than what it does tell us. And so we kind of have, that's why I said dogma doctrine. You got to be real careful that you're not dogmatic on this because there's some things that you have to say, you know what? I look at the timeline and I see some gaps and I have to kind of fill in the gaps with what I think may be the best explanation. And you have to just say, that's, that's my best, my best guess. All right. All right. Let's talk about um, the next view which is amillennial. Which I call the kiss. Keep it simple. Uh, so I'm going to um I'm going to keep the line there. And fundamentally, it comes down to how you interpret how you understand the the, the way the Bible set up. So let's talk about Amil. Okay, so you've got the same thing starting on this side. You've got the birth of Christ. Let me see if these guys can see. You've got the birth of Christ. You've got the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Now, let me just say, amillennialism takes a highly symbolic view of interpreting the Scripture. The, the, especially the book of... The, well, they take a highly symbolic view of interpreting apocalyptic literature. So... 
we see that Satan is bound, okay? And he's bound for how long? A thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, he's let out. Since the amillennial view is more symbolic, they see that when Jesus died on the cross, he bound the strong man when he rose from the dead and he sent it back. In a sense, Satan has been bound for deceiving the nations. Now, it doesn't mean that Satan can't tempt. It doesn't mean that Satan's not still a roaring lion looking for someone to desire to devour. Um, It basically just means that the spread of the gospel to the nations can go out in power without Satan deceiving the nations. Okay? Now, here's the huge difference. Since it's symbolic, this thousand years is not a literal thousand years. It's, it's more of a symbolic understanding of this present age. So an amillennial view would say we are actually now living in a symbolic millennial age. Christ is reigning in heaven. The promises that were made to Abraham, to Israel, to David, they've all been fulfilled in Christ and the church. So the church is the fulfillment The church is now the temple of God. All the promises made to Abraham and his offspring, all that comes to fruition in Christ and his church. Now, this is where it's similar to premillennial historic. Right before the end of, right before the second coming, there will be an apostasy because Satan will be released. He'll be able to deceive a great many of people. There will be a great rebellion. Then what happens? Jesus comes back. There's a resurrection. Or rapture. Right then, since since there's not a literal thousand years, right then you got judgment. Then you got heaven. Then you got hell. So this view takes a highly symbolic view. I lost my pen, my thing. Takes a highly symbolic view of this passage of scripture, and says that it's not a literal thousand-year reign on planet Earth, but the. All the way through the book of Revelation, John's been using symbolic language to talk about things. And so when we come to Revelation 20, why should we not take it symbolically as we've been taking it all along? And so this is, you know, an indefinite period under God's sovereignty that we're living in right now where the promises made to those Old Testament saints are fulfilled in Christ and His church. Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. Christ is ruling from heaven. The Holy Spirit's living in us. We're going forth in power through the Holy Spirit. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be tribulation. But right towards the very end, at an unspecified time, I mean, uns- at a time when God ordains, Satan will be released. And then there will be a huge apostasy, a huge rebellion. Christ will come back. 
Those who are, are dead will be raised. At this point, everybody's raised. There's not two resurrections. It's one resurrection. And then there's the final judgment at the great white throne. And then there's heaven and there's hell. So, so it's a little less complicated than the other views because it takes it as a, as a highly symbolic way of looking at it. Okay? So let's look at our sheet here. And let's... Um, so amillennialism. This has been the majority view since Augustine in the 400s until it morphed into postmillennialism in the late 1800s. Uh, this has been the majority view of Southern Baptists until recently the last 25 years or so. Uh, this view is held by the majority of conservative Presbyterian and Lutheran denominations, many Baptists, and finds more friends in the Reformed tradition. Uh, people who hold this view are R.C. Sproul, Dr. Michael Horton, Leon Morris, Anthony Hokema, Louis Burkhoff, these names may not mean anything to you, John Murray, Lorraine Bettner, John Calvin, Augustine, Martin Luther, Mark Dever, D.A. Carson, Vody Bauckham, Sinclair Ferguson, Ligon Duncan, and many others. Okay, contrary to popular belief, amillennialism is not a belief that there is no millennium, it just means it's a symbolic millennium. Okay, now here's the big interpretive understanding of the amillennium position. In the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, and in Paul and the writer of Hebrews, they speak of this age and the age to come. Go back and look at a study of all the times that Jesus and Paul talk about this age and the age to come. So what an amillennial theologian would say is, there's only two ages. There's this present age and the age to come. And the way they look at that is this age is the age that we're living in right now, the symbolic millennium. The age to come, that's heaven and hell. If you put a literal millennium between those two, you've added a third age. This age, the millennial age, then the age to come. And so they look at that and say, because you have two ages, to add a literal millennium actually puts something in the middle there. It's like there's three ages. So, so they look at that and say, okay, there's two ages. So you have to determine what are those ages, the age to come, this, this present age. Um, number two there, according to the interpretation of Revelation 20, the thousand years is to be taken as a symbolic number referring to the present church age where Christ is reigning spiritually in heaven with those Christians who have died in their disembodied souls. Um, some of this stuff we've already shown on there will be increasing apostasy, persecution, and tribulation on the earth, especially toward the end of this time when Satan is set free to deceive the nations. The binding of Satan was done by Jesus on the cross. This does not mean that he's powerless and cannot attack, but that he is chained and limited and cannot deceive the nations from accepting the gospel. The church will endure the great tribulation. Okay, there's a similarity. There's a huge similarity between the premillennial, the classic premillennial, and the amillennial position. They hold two things in common. The two things they hold in common is the church believers will go through the great tribulation and the second coming and the resurrection are simultaneous back-to-back one-time event. Um, number six, Christ will return visibly, bodily, and literally with the deceased saints in power and glory to destroy the powers of evil. The dead in Christ and those alive will be raptured. There will be one resurrection. Both the righteous and the unrighteous will be resurrected at the same time. The souls in heaven who came to life and reigned with Christ experienced the first register. Okay, so here's the, big, here's the big thing here. Okay, so look at uh, number four. Verse, number, not number four, verse four. 
This is how an amillennial person would interpret the first resurrection. Um, they look at the first, um, number, verse 5, um, the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. They look at the first resurrection not as a, um, not as a literal resurrection, like bodily rapture type resurrection. They look at the first resurrection as in your spiritual regeneration. The moment that you were raised to spiritual life. The moment that you got regenerated. Um, means you were born again. You went from spiritual death to spiritual life. Um, there will be no literal thousand year reign between the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the unrighteous. All people will appear before Christ the great white throne judgment to receive either their inheritance to either heaven or hell. The righteous will live eternally with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, and the unrighteous will be cast into the lake of fire. Now let's talk about the strengths and weaknesses of this position. Um, this position answers the questions about many of the texts that speak of only one resurrection and one judgment. Um, you go back and look at those. We don't necessarily have time to do that, but there are verses that talk about one resurrection, one judgment. Um, here it talks about the first resurrection and the second resurrection. Um, Number two, this position answers the question of the two-age idea, that there's a present age and an age to come. Um, number three, the idea of glorified believers who have been raptured and received their resurrected bodies living on earth together with unbelieving si sinners is a difficult to accept in their view. Um, their question, if, if Christ comes in glory to reign upon the earth for a little thousand years, how could people still persist in sin? The big question they have is, what's the purpose of a little earthly millennium? Once the church age is ended and Christ is returned, what's the reason for delaying the eternal state? Um, does not take a wooden literalistic approach to interpreting highly symbolic and apocalyptic literature. Okay. Weaknesses. There seems to be some Old Testament passages that speak of a future period that's far greater than the present age, but still falls short of the eternal state. So there are passages that you don't have to just buy into this age and the age to come, that there's only two ages. There seems to be some Old Testament passages that speak about a millennial reign. The other question is, can Satan truly be bound during the church age? It appears that the imagery here of an abyss and sealing and shutting him in is more extensive than just, you know, he's... That language sounds like he doesn't have any power at all. Okay, not that he just can't deceive the nations, but that he can't, um, you know, he, he's, he's bound. Um, and then the idea of the resurrection being spiritual in nature uh, doesn't really fit grammatically or hermeneutically with the passage. The verb came to life really means a physical resurrection. Okay. So this one's a little bit more simple. It's more symbolic. It kind of gets right to the point. And the big question, the big question for the um, millennial would be, and, there, and this is the question they'll ask, is what's the purpose of the millennium? If Christ has come back and you're going to go up, why do we come back to earth for a thousand years and reign? Why don't we just go straight to heaven? Well, then maybe you're an amillennialist. I don't know. Um, that, that's just a question they ask. Okay, so the one similarity, though, that's very interesting between the two is this idea of Christians going through the tribulation, 
the second coming, like one second coming, that when Christ comes back, it's a simultaneous back-to-back with the rapture slash resurrection. Okay, um, let's look at the last view, and that way we'll have all three, and then we can compare and contrast and ask more questions. But out of fairness, I wanted to give you all three. And as you can see, this one's got a little bit more, more charts and graphs on this one. This one is called, this one's premillennial, so you know that there's going to be a literal thousand years, but it, it's distinctly different from early church father, historic premillennial. This one is often called the dispensational. Dispensational premillennial or premillennial dispensationalism. How's that for a mouthful? And so, a dispensational view is going to come with a grid to the way that they view Scripture. They are going to see the Bible divided up into seven, historically, seven dispensations. Or periods of time. And what a dispensation is, is a way God interacted with the earth, his creation, the way God operated in time and space at certain points in history. So at the top of that chart, uh, you've got the seven dispensations. This is historic. There's some disagreement among dispensationalists on how many actual dispensations there are, but I'm giving you kind of the historical view. Um, So dispensation one would be the age of innocence at creation, where Adam and Eve were in the garden. Then you had the fall, and then so you had um, the dispensation of conscience between the fall and Noah. Uh, Then after the flood, you had human government with um, the Tower of Babel. Then you had Abraham, which is obviously a whole new trajectory where God made a promise to Abraham that he would give him a land and descendants. And then Moses came along, and so the fifth dispensation is the law. You have the Ten Commandments. You have Deuteronomy and Exodus and all of the the, the Mosaic law. Um, And then when Christ came, you have um, the age of grace, which is the church age, which is where we are right now. And then um, at Christ's second coming, he will set up the seventh dispensation, which is the kingdom, uh, the millennium. Okay. Now, here's the big issue. And this is kind of um, what Richard was saying earlier, that God has two, um, I guess you want to say two plans or two, I guess I don't want to use the word plans, but let's just say, God has one scheme or one plan or one way of dealing with Israel and another way dealing with the church. So there's, there's a dis- sharp distinction between Israel and the church. And so, um, can I, well, let me just erase this real quick. So dispensationalists will automatically say there's a sharp divide between how God operates with Israel and there's a sharp divide with how God operates with the church. So let's look at our chart here. Obviously, you got Christ being born. I'm going to start with that. Okay. So when Jesus came in the Gospels, he made an offer to the Jews. He came to his people. He offered them the kingdom. Okay. God offered, or Jesus offered the Jews the kingdom. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, John chapter 1. 
if they would have received the kingdom, some dispensationalists disagree upon this, but um, some would say God knew that they weren't going to, you know, accept the kingdom. But if they would have, then, you know, some dispensationalists would go on to say, like extreme would say, Jesus wouldn't even have to die because they would have just set it up right there. But the point is, is that Jesus offered the Israel, the Jews, the kingdom, and they refused their Messiah. So God said, okay, my plan A to offer the kingdom to the Jews has been rejected. So now, after his death, burial, and resurrection, God's going to go to a different way of operating. He's going to deal with the Gentile church. And a lot of times you'll hear um, dispensationalists use words like parenthesis, like God's main plan was to offer the Jews the kingdom, but since they rejected it, he kind of had to go to a parenthesis. He kind of had to, he's now dealing with the Gentile church, okay, which is where we're at right now. Sometimes towards the end, there's going to be some significant signs of the end. Now, here's where the, the views differ, okay? So the first two views had the same view of the tribulation, had the same view of the resurrection. Here's where this view differs from those other two. This view sees a secret rapture of the church, a secret rapture. Christ comes back and the church, the Gentile church is raptured. So God has finished His working for this period with the Gentile church. They've been raptured out. Now He's going to go back and deal with Israel who refused His offer back when Jesus was here. So once the rapture has happened and there's unbelievers still left, left behind in the Left Behind books, you've got a literal seven-year tribulation. Interestingly, nowhere in the book of Revelation do you find the seven-year tribulation that comes more from Daniel. During the seven-year tribulation, you can get into the intricacies where three and a half years through it, there's a peace treaty that's broken with the Antichrist. During this seven-year period of tribulation, a literal 144,000 Jews are converted. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, that's when the, 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 um, the return of Christ comes. Where He actually comes back to her. This is more of a secret rapture where He comes for His church, gets the church out, deals back with Israel. There's a conversion of Jews. There's a time of great tribulation. This is more focusing on, on Israel. Christ comes back. Now you have the literal thousand-year reign. That's the similar one to the historic one. And some dispensationalists will disagree with this, but most dispensationalists will say that because God is using the, 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 the literal thousand years to kind of deal with the Jews, um, Jesus will actually um, reign from the temple 
and some dispensationalists say that the Old Testament sacrificial system will actually be reinstituted. That they'll actually go back to the sacrificial system and the temple worship with Jesus there. Then again, you have the nations revolting. You have the apostasy because Satan's been bound during this little thousand years. Then you've got final judgment. And then you've got heaven and hell. Okay, so let's look at the differences and the similarities. This view is similar to the historic classic premillennial view in that it sees a literal thousand-year reign. So this is pretty similar. You've got the great apostasy at the end. You've got final judgment. You've got heaven and hell. The big difference is, is the kind of plan A, plan B, secret rapture of the church, God's plan with the Jews, God's plan with the Gentile church, that those are two separate things that shall never, shall never meet. Um, and that's kind of their grid of understanding uh, the way that the end times works. So let's look at, make sure we have enough time. Um, let's look on our sheet, and I try to get the font as small as I could to fit it all on one sheet because I wanted you to be able to see um, all of these. So this represents the newest and most complicated, as you can see, a little bit, I don't mean complicated in a negative way, it's just got a lot of pieces there. Um, it was espoused in the late 1800s by John Nelson Darby, uh, later popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible in the early 1900s. This view had mainly been in the independent fundamentalist movement until the past 25 years, where it's been popularized by Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth, uh, Jerry Falwell, most TV preachers like Jack Vanapee, uh, and the ever-popular Left Behind series. This has only been a major Southern Baptist view since the late 70s. Um, other adherents are John MacArthur, Dave Hunt, some of these Men of, men of God have passed on. Adrian Rogers, Charles Stanley, Billy Graham, uh, Chuck Swindoll, and J David Jeremiah. Uh, so more modern day since it's a fairly newer one in history. Um, so let's look at, um, I think I explained all those. Um, the Bible is to be strictly interpreted literally with regard to prophecy. There's very little room for symbolism. Uh, number two, Christ offered to the Jews of his day the kingdom of God, which would set up the throne of David, where Christ would rule from, as king from Jerusalem, but they rejected it. Since the Jews rejected plan A, God instituted plan B, which was to offer salvation to the Gentiles of the church. There's a very sharp distinction between Israel and the church, and God has two very separate plans of dealing with them. The Old Testament is to be interpreted on its own terms rather than light of the New Testament. The geopolitical nation-state of Israel has a distinct role in end times events. The distinction between the church and Israel calls for a pre-tribulation secret rapture of the church to remove them from the earth so God can go back to plan A in dealing with the Jews. The Jews will go through the tribulation as a means to convert them to Christ, while the church will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. This position assumes a rebuilt temple and the nation-state Israel being a reality. And I've given you guys the timeline. The Antichrist will rise just prior to the Great Tribulation. The rapture of the church will be secret, leaving millions behind just before the Great Tribulation. Since the church is mentioned in Revelations 1-3 through 3 and disappears in the rest of the book until the end, this is interpreted to infer a rapture. The tribulation is for seven years, divided into two, three and a half segments. Uh, the first three and a half years, you got catastrophes, wars, famine. 144,000 Jews are sealed and protected. The great multitude of Gentiles are saved. You got the two literal witnesses arising, Elijah and Mo Moses. The temple is rebuilt. Um, the second half of the seven and a half years, Antichrist breaks peace treaty with Jews and they suffer great persecution, great wars on earth. Antichrist sets himself up in a literal temple, worldwide apostate religion of ten-nation confederacy led by the Antichrist. Then you got the second coming of Christ, ends with the Battle of Armageddon, millennial kingdom is established, institution of Old Testament sacrificial system. 
Strengths of this position, admirable attempts to take the Bible absolute literal in all respects. It takes a more literalistic approach to Bible prophecy and handles Revelation 20 at face value as a literal thousand-year reign. It deals more accurately with the first resurrection of the righteous being bodily in nature rather than spiritualizing it. It sees the value of Israel in God's plan. Uh, weaknesses, um, it comes to the text with somewhat of a bias that God has two plans of dealing with the Jews and the church. Um, it views the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven as two separate issues. Uh, the kingdom of God for the Jews who rejected it and the kingdom of heaven for the church. Uh, most scholars see these as synonyms. Um, instead of interpreting Old Testament to New Testament, um, it tends to focus more on the Old Testament understanding. Um, a secret pre-tribulation rapture must be assumed to fit into this system. And proponents have sometimes been guilty of judgmentalism toward other views and making it a litmus test uh, for orthodoxy. And then this view has been susceptible to sensationalism, setting dates, and, and naming Antichrist. So, you're either thoroughly confused or you've picked a, 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 you've picked a view. <laughs> or maybe you're, you're not even there yet. Um, so, my goal tonight was just to show you that Throughout church history, for the past 2,000 years, you look at the names of those people and, and probably just people you know, there's a lot of differences of opinion and differences of how people view Revelation 20. And a lot of it's based upon how you understand the interpretation of the Scriptures. Do you come with more of a symbolic approach? Do you come more with a um, two-separate plan approach? Um, what, what's, your, what's your way of understanding that? And so um, there's weaknesses in all of them. There's strengths in all of them. I think at the end of the day, what you have to say is, this is the view I hold to. These are the reasons why. And I'm not going to be dogmatic on it, but I'm going to say this. I have strong opinions on it, but this is where I land, and this is why. Or you can be like my dad, who's a pan-millennialist. It's going to all pan out in the end, so I don't worry about the details. <laughs> That's kind of a cop-out way of looking at it um, because it's in the Bible. We need to understand it. So questions, comments, snide remarks, things you want to... Do any of these three tend to lean towards replacement theology? Some of the text I was reading seem to imply... Some people would say that amillennialism, if gone to an extreme, could do that. And what do you, I guess what do you mean, I guess my question is, define what you mean by replacement theology so I can answer the question. Because well, there may be some people that don't... Is, as my understanding of it is that uh, he's given up on the Jews and the Christians, you know, and, and going with the Gentiles has replaced, it, the church has replaced the, the, the promises of Israel. Yeah, that would be like an extreme view. Historically, all the views hold room for the, a great conversion of Jews. Um, it just depends on... Okay. Yeah, because you can't read Romans 9, 10, and 11 and not see, especially Romans chapter 11, that God has a plan for a great conversion of Jews. Um, so I think an extreme view would say, yeah, God doesn't care about the Jews and He's only going with the, the church. I, I think all the views have room for a mass conversion of Jews, just the timing and when it all happens. And if it's a literal 144,000 during the tribulation or is it a great number that's more symbolic. Uh, and, and then, I, I guess, based on my hearing tonight, I tend to be an Alvarenius for, 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 for a couple of reasons. A thousand years, while all of a sudden, all of a sudden, nothing else was fixed. A thousand years is an absolute number. Mm -hmm. Why should it all of a sudden mm -hmm. now be? And 
absolute mm -hmm. number mm -hmm. based on you know the teaching that mm -hmm. you have brought mm -hmm. forth. Well, I, I think if you, yeah, and I mean, also, it, also you just have to. With that, I like the simple approach. Kiss, <laughs> you know, well, just because it's simple doesn't necessarily mean it's. Um, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's the most simplest in terms of answering all the questions. Well, it's still, yeah, I mean, all of them have holes in them in some ways. Any other questions? Junior, you look like you have a question. You, you don't have a question? Well, you guys came out on a cold night to get confused. Um, probably what we'll do, well, let's look here, because next week, I'm trying to think if we'll be able to finish before, we'll definitely finish before spring break. Um, Yeah, we've got just two more chapters. So probably what we'll do is we'll spend at least two or three more weeks in Revelation and we'll so um and that that hand that I gave you is kind of interesting. It's it's pretty intricate. Um my mom tells me when she was a Sunday school teacher back in nineteen ninety six when that came out, she tried to teach all three views side by side every week, and she said it was the most confusing, convoluted thing I've ever done, and nobody learned anything. So it's like, pick a view and teach that view. That's, that, I think that's your best thing. Is like, if you're going to teach or hold to an end times view, and you're pretty solid in it, stick to that view and teach it. <laughs> because if you try to teach, what I've done for you tonight is just expose you to all three. But I think that you know it gets confusing to people if you keep switching back and forth and don't and just kind of. The imminent return of Christ? Yeah. All of them. Um, it depends on how you view imminent return. So, the, well, right. The dispensationalist view would say that the rapture, the secret coming of Christ, is imminent, could come at any time. But the return of Christ to earth, has, there has to be some things in place before that happens. Okay. There's got to be a rebuilt temple. There's got to be. There's got to be those. There's got to be that. Set, those things have got to be in place for the return of Christ to set up His millennial kingdom. The rapture of the church, that's imminent. That could happen any time. All millennial historic says the return of Christ can happen at any time. They just see the return of Christ and the the catching up and the resurrection is a simultaneous back-to-back -back event. They don't separate. The first two views don't have a secret rapture and then a seven-year and then a millennium. The first two have Christ comes back. That's when He comes back. It's not a secret catching up. He comes back. We go up. Historic, thousand years, millennial, judgment, heaven, and hell. Does that make sense? Because we don't really know when Christ can come back. He can come back any time. Oh gosh. It depends. I mean, to be honest with you, I've tried to, to, to not pick a view because every time I pick a view, I look at the other view and say, yeah, there's, there's merits to that one. And I look at this one like there's merits to that one. Um, I say if I had, like if somebody put a gun to my head, if I had to pick one, I'd probably pick the first one. 
historic premillennial. Um, but then again, I, I could be wrong. But I don't want you to pick the view. I don't want you to say that's Pastor Sean's view, so that's my view. I want you to hold the view. My job is not. My job is to say here's the three views. We kind of did a cursory flyby night overview. Um, I have a bunch of books in my library that, like, there's a couple of books that that show all the different views. Um, I got a lot of books in my office if you ever want to borrow them and read them. I've been studying in time since I was in high school, so it's been a long journey and. Um, yeah, I just think there's some things that, I guess my issue with end times is this, I'd rather, whatever view you hold to, I, I wish you're, I'd hope you're humble in that view, because I've seen some people have a view and say, this is the only way, and if you don't believe in my view, you know, you're a heretic. Yeah. It's like, no, wait a minute, <laughs> for 2,000 years we've had differences of opinion, um, you're, you can have that strong view. And I'm glad you have that strong view, but can I have my strong view too? And let's not be calling each other, you know. So I think it's a doctrine issue, not a dogma issue, okay? So how you view the end times and all these different... Um, so what are the four things that have to be there? The literal, visible return of Christ, the resurrection, bodily resurrection of the righteous and unrighteous, a judgment, and heaven and hell. Now how all those details unfold, that's where the differences come. And we can have fun disagreements and agreements on that, um, but I think that the, the, those are the four main things that really need to be in here. And there's yeah. a blessing and study in Revelation. Yes. In the beginning of the book, he says, Blessed are those who hear aloud the words of this prophecy. Remember what I told you? I said, sit down and read it out loud in one setting. Just read the whole book out loud. It takes about 45 minutes. How long did it take you, Sue? Did you say when you read the book? About 40 minutes or something? An hour, yeah. Yeah, she texted me and said, I read the whole thing out loud. I had one, we, and I taught this in a small group, I had one lady, she read it out loud, and after it got to the end, she started weeping. She said, I started weeping when I, after I read it out loud because the weight of God's glory and the reality of heaven just flooded my soul, and I just I began to weep out loud when I read it out loud to myself. So that's why it's a blessing. Blessed are those who read the words of this prophecy. Yes, Kevin. I was wondering on the premillennial dispensationalism view. The third one? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Plymouth. Any earlier uh, holders of the view or portions of the view before him? He's the father of the view. Um, and even dispensationalists will say that. Um, if you go back and look at the writings in church history, right. you really don't see a lot of the things espoused in dispensationalism show up before that. Um, he was a Plymouth Brethren pastor, and um, his views did not really get popularized until the Schofield Reference Bible. So C.I. Schofield, I think the Schofield Reference Bible was like 1904 or something. So the Schofield Reference Bible is really what popularized that. And then institutions like Moody Bible Institute and Dallas Theological Seminary. And, and so if you go into a Christian bookstore today, which I don't really encourage you doing, right. um, but if you, not for just because you see a lot of weird stuff these days. But the the dispensationalist view is the, probably the view that most people have grown up with because that's the view that's the most popular that the TV, you know. And so uh, these other views are older in church history and they may be a little bit more 
Um, and, and, and then some of you may have come in tonight like, I don't even know which view I hold to. I just came in to hear what they were. You know? So some of you have come in with like, this is my view. I've held it for a long time. Others are like, this is kind of where I lean. Um, but that's going to be the more popular. Because the Left Behind books, I mean, um, I, I've told you guys the story. When I was a youth pastor in Colorado Springs, um, Jerry Jenkins, who wrote the Left Behind books, his son was in my youth group. So we had some interesting discussions when we talked about end time stuff. So. Mm-hmm. It, I did a little bit of research on that, and it appeared that there were some precursors, but it wasn't popular. Yeah, there could have been. I mean, I'd have to go back in, hist- in history to look at, at that and see. Um, you can definitely go back and see the historic premillennial, because that's what the early church fathers taught. Um, Jerry, I saw a hand back there. Yeah. Why do they call it the secret rapture? Well, they call it a secret rapture in the sense that when... Christians are caught up, the watching world doesn't really know what's happening. Um, people are just kind of getting, and so Christ comes for His church, and people that are on the earth are left behind. So it's not Christ coming back to earth to set up His millennial reign. It's Christ coming for His church to, to rapture them out so that the tribulation time can happen and He can go back and, and, and have a massive conversion of the Jews. Maybe secret's not a good word, but it's it's one of those things where the watching world's not going to know what happened. Right. And they're not going to know it was Jesus that, that did it. It's just a bunch of people have disappeared. And, and so, but on the second coming, according to that view, everybody's going to know because Christ is going to come back and there's going to be the visible, literal return of Christ. So, does, that, does that make sense, Jerry? Okay. Well, secret to the world. I mean, the, obviously, believers will know, but secret to the to the to the watching world. All right, you guys have worn me out. <laughs> no, that's that's good. That's good stuff. So, um, yeah, if you have any, yeah, the main thing was just to kind of give you guys the three views side by side. I tried to be as unbiased as I could, just so, um, like, what's his name used to say? Um, I don't know. So you can make you can make your own decisions. All right, well, let's pray, and then um, hopefully it's not too cold out there. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have tonight to look at your, your word, Lord. And it's been a, a lot of uh, things on the board and uh, different concepts. And, um, Lord, we can sometimes lose the forest for the trees, but help us to remember the reality um, that there are many around us whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life that need to hear the gospel. And so, Lord, would we go to those around us that are lost and perishing, and we share with them the hope of the gospel. And Lord, we look forward to the day when you will make all things new, um, when our great enemy, the ancient serpent, Satan, will be thrown into the lake of fire, and uh, we will be vindicated once and for all by your power and your glory. And so we await that day, and Jesus, just help us keep our eyes fixed on you. Uh, We can get so bogged down in the things on this earth and not keep our eyes fixed on you and our future inheritance and what you have for us. And so, Jesus, just help us to to walk by faith, not by sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.